the end of two eras. Freddie Freeman, no longer a Brave. Matt Ryan, no longer a Falcon. One situation is handled a lot better than the other. I'll tell you which one it is, if you don't already know, on this episode of the Hopeless Sports Mantid Podcast. So a situation that many of us Braves fans were dreading probably since the before the start of this past season, the possibility of Freddie Freeman no longer playing in a Braves uniform, and I think more specifically playing in a Dodger uniform. And that's exactly what we're going to see heading into the 2022 Major League Baseball season. Freddie was in constant negotiations throughout this season. I think even prior to the season, he might, whether it was listening to his friends and family, whether it was listening to his agents, despite massive efforts from Alex Anthopoulos and the rest of the Braves front office, they were unable to get a deal done, largely held up by the idea of a six-year contract rather than five. He ends up in the seemingly endless pit wallet of the Los Angeles Dodgers. However, we end up in a situation where there's still plenty of optimism, I think, in the Braves fan base. Why? Because Alex Anthopoulos and his never-ending genius works together a beautiful trade, gives up a couple of prospects namely Christian Pache and Shea Langliers, and gets Matt Olson, a homegrown kid from the state of Georgia, about four years younger than Freddie Freeman. And then not only do we get him, you're sitting here as a Braves fan. You think, okay, we got two years of a solid first baseman. That at least keeps the window open. No. What does this man do? He comes in, gives Matt Olson a long-term extension, puts him in Atlanta long-term and keeps the Atlanta Braves, I think, keeps the window open perpetually, which is something that I think there are very few GMs in all of sports that can pull off a move like that. Not only is Olsen younger, but this extension is also cheaper for the Braves, which is incredibly important because although you have Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna on long-term deals, there's still some guys, maybe Dansby Swanson, maybe Ian Anderson. I think, of course, Austin Riley is also in that category, especially as a Super 2. You're going to want to have some more money left over to give extensions to these young guys that have been part of the young core that is Basically, the reason that the Braves were able to win a World Series this past year. I would like to clarify that Matt Olson's contract is eight years, $168 million, and Freddie's is six years, $160 million. So it's only $8 million more overall, and you're getting two more years total out of a contract on a player that's four years younger than Freddie Freeman. So I th- I think this is just a win-win for the Braves. You're able to keep the same lineup going. It's very similar skill sets between the two guys. Both Olsen and Freeman are terrific defensive first basemen, and both are left-handed power bats. Now, you're the, the only difference, or I guess I should say the main difference between the two is Olsen has a little bit higher strikeout numbers, doesn't put the ball in play as much, but I think his overall power numbers are also higher than Freeman in that regard. He hit more home runs and drove in more runs if you just want to keep the stats simple. I do believe his WRC was a little bit higher as weighted runs created plus for those that are more of the analytical approach to the game. So 
I, I think this is a guy, obviously, living in it, being from Atlanta, not only being from Atlanta, but his off-season home is there. I think that definitely is going to create some extra motivation. And I think I, I don't want to dog on the Oakland fan base at all, but I think just a team that's willing to do a lot more to be competitive, just spend a little bit more money then Oakland is definitely also a motivating factor for him. The only issue with that, I should say on the flip side of that, is there also is the added pressure in that environment. And that's definitely a situation that the more pessimistic Braves fan is going to want to um, put that out there as well. I mainly think of the Nate McClough trade as an example of a guy that put a lot of heavy numbers up in a lower market, in a smaller market uh, with less exposure. And I think Atlanta being um, the, the brand that it is and having TBS is one of the biggest brands in all of baseball. And so there's definitely pressure there. Now the the question is to whether you're going to be a guy that's going to explode under that pressure or a guy that's going to be a pressure cooker himself. And I think really take advantage of that. Take advantage of the the added fan support. Take advantage of the the jet stream that seems to blow the ball out to right field for the left-handed hitters in Atlanta. And with, I think, True as being a more hitter-friendly park in general as well as something that he's definitely going to be looking forward to during his time in Atlanta. I think this is able to... The best way I can describe this is it's very sad to see Freddie go. Again, I don't want to make any judgments until we have all of the facts in front of us as to why he didn't end up in Atlanta. So I'm not going to throw any theories out there in that regard. But it's sad to see him go. I think some of the fan base is still a little bit down in that regard. Just with all of the sacrifices that Freddie made, sticking through the rebuild, being the, a main producer in the playoffs. You think we there's a very good chance we don't end up with these moments from Rosario and Ozzy Albies later in the playoffs without Freddie Freeman's home run off of arguably the best closer in baseball and Josh Hader. So what is going to, I guess, heal those wounds. Honestly, I think the first time we see Matt Olson hit a tank onto the roof of the chop house, I think that's going to be definitely a point where most of the fan base is feeling a lot better. But I think um, it, it, it's the, the there's the saying that time heals all wounds. I'm definitely not sure that it's going to heal everybody's wound just as fast, especially those that grew to love Freddie as their favorite players. Now, I think the other side of the equation is when you have Ronald Acuna back in the fold, as we'll see uh, towards the, I believe, the end of April with him at least DHing, maybe see him in the outfield a little bit later on. That's definitely a situation that's going to help out um and obviously winning. You win games, people are content with whatever roster you have. We've seen that happen in St. Louis with the Cardinals. If you want to go to the NFL side of the equation, there were tons and tons of different rosters around Tom Brady, yet he consistently was able to bring that city a Super Bowl. So we'll have to see how quickly Olsen, I think, adjusts to a new environment. We saw Josh Donaldson get off to a little bit of a slower start in 2019. Then again, we saw Marcelo Zuna really explode from the start of the 2020 season. So with him back in the fold as well, um, to the disappointing side of me, given the um, history of what uh, Ozuna um, did in terms of why he was suspended, during this past season, but outside of Jorge Soler, pretty much most of this Atlanta Braves roster, plus Kenley Jansen in the bullpen and switching out Freddie Freeman for Matt Olson, this is a team that is definitely set to make another run at a World Series. Now we head to the flip side of the equation. The Atlanta Falcons are 
working through this horrible cap situation that's left in place by Thomas Dimitrov and the old regime in Atlanta that basically was playing with house money by the last season, given some of these contracts that they brought in and really gives Terry Fontenot and this new office uh, um, just a lot of crap just to have to clean up out of the trough that is the financial situation of the Atlanta Falcons. What do what does this new front office see as a solution? We don't know what it was prior to this past week, but we know that Deshaun Watson gave them a call or his agency representatives gave him a call and all of a sudden the priorities changed on a whim and we decided to become one of the heavier suitors for Deshaun Watson. There's reports coming out. We we see that the the offers are out there for the different teams that the Texans have agreed to. Now, the tricky part of it is these offers also have to be run through Deshaun Watson because of his no-trade clause that he has to void. So there's almost a recruiting trip kind of situation going on for Deshaun while he's traveling to New Orleans to talk to the Saints, goes to Carolina to talk to the Panthers, goes up to Cleveland to talk to the Browns, and then goes down to his hometown of Atlanta to talk to the Falcons after him reaching out to the Falcons organization first. We get a few days into these talks and then it breaks out that Cleveland is largely out of the picture, whether it's the culture issues in Cleveland, whether it's Baker Mayfield and his situation, whether it's the weather, we, we don't know. But it's assumed largely that Deshaun Watson is not going to go to the Cleveland Browns. So then it comes down to the three teams in the NFC South. Carolina is out. Not a very strong winning situation. A coaching staff that I think is simply just staying in place a year longer than they should. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it does. That's why I can see it coming from a mile away. Anyway, we're left with apparently New Orleans and Atlanta. New Orleans is very much a win-now type situation. You have an older team, but a much stronger team with a lot more depth and a tricky cap situation as well to navigate. That's not really a separating factor between the last two teams. And then with Atlanta, you have a rebuilding team, similar cap situation, if not worse. But here's the kicker. Deshaun's from Gainesville. He's a hometown guy. He would be willing to make a ton of sacrifices, we're, we're told, to play for his hometown team that he grew up being a ball boy for. Maybe we can fix the cap situation by uh, guys coming in on team-friendly contracts, coming in on league minimums, guys that have already made their money. That's not really an idea for them. That's what I told myself. That's how we were going to get Leonard Fournette. That's how we were going to get Jarvis Landry, all these type of guys, in order to become a competitive team at a lot faster rate. So then it closes in. Even some of the local Atlanta guys start reporting that it's just the tiny details being worked out in the contract and the trade will be finalized within a few hours. A few hours go by. One hour, two hours, three hours. It's the end of the evening. I go to sleep. No trade news. I wake up the next morning. My phone... As usual, is lit up with uh, notifications from all the different um, insiders that I get notif- notifications for because that's how much of a sports junkie I am. And we see it's the Cleveland Browns making the trade for Deshaun Watson. Not only is Cleveland in here making the trade, but they're also giving him a five-year extension worth $230 million fully guaranteed. Now, what goes through my head is obviously what happened. Turns out, I, I think this this is just a massive learning experience for a very young front office f- for the Falcons. This is they they got played like a fiddle. End of story. 
there's no way to make this look good for Matt Ryan. There's no way for this to look good or for the rest of the fan base. And if anything, you've united the uh, anti-Watson part of the fan base and the pro-Watson fan base for either not getting him or even trying to get him in the first place. Um, obviously, that's largely due to the ongoing investigation involving Deshaun at this point and the civil suit, I should clarify more accurately. But I guess it's just what happens when you get your hopes up as a Falcons fan. You get stabbed in the foot. I don't want to say in the heart because that was ripped out years and years ago. It's the emotional equivalent of just stubbing your of somebody going into your house, turning all of the lights out in the middle of the night, waking you up, and then everything is two to three inches out of position, and you just stub your toe on everything as you walk through your entire house looking for the intruder. That is the Atlanta Falcons fan base. That is what we dealt with for the last week. Is it the complete opposite of the Atlanta Braves? Yes. Am I trying to use that as a coping mechanism? Maybe. But now we're in a situation. You've you've aggravated Matt Ryan. Obviously, he handled it incredibly professionally in a way that I never would have. Is there a good chunk of this fan base that is cheering to see him gone? Yes. Are they pretty idiotic to have that desire in my opinion yes do people completely underestimate how difficult it is to have stability at the quarterback position at the nfl yes so now rather than being able to if you wanted to trade matt ryan because you you've shown your hand that way with how hard you've gone after deshaun that you want to trade matt ryan away so we look at the Carson Wentz trade, he gets he's given to Washington for a second and a third round pick. And the uh, cap situation is still not horrible for Washington. Philly, I believe, is still paying them a bunch of paying him a bunch of money, despite the fact that he's now on not one but two more teams after that. But that to me shows in in, in a well-run situation, you probably get a couple of first-round picks. I think at least a couple of second-round picks for Matt, despite this cap situation that he's in with, obviously, you're paying him $40 million in dead cap, and it's a rather large hit two years in the remaining two years for the opponent, for, for I don't want to say the opponent, for the team that is given his skill set at quarterback. Now it gets to a point, the only competition really left in the market is Marcus Mariota and Baker Mayfield, but the Falcons lose all their leverage. So what happens? You get him for a third-round pick. So not only just a third-round pick, but... The, the Colts had multiple third-round picks that they got from, um, including the one that they got from Washington in that trade. Which one did the Falcons get? Not the 75th pick, but the 82nd pick or the 83rd pick. I can't remember which one. Either way, it's the worst pick of the third-round picks. So it's just a situation. It, this cannot get over fast enough. We all know it's a long and tedious rebuild in place, and it's really hard for me to make sense of the fact that this team decided they were going to try to be competitive in year one of this new coaching staff or front office. Maybe they thought they could generate a morale boost through, during, while playing this week's schedule, and maybe that would attract free agents. Maybe they just didn't fully understand how bad this cap situation was. I don't know. But it's now to the point that, obviously, I believe Josh Harris, the long snapper, and then Brady Jarrett and Deion Jones are the only remaining players from the 2016 Super Bowl team. And I think the only reason that Grady's not gone is just his impact and the teams haven't gotten around to it. I would expect Grady Jarrett to get moved at some point. And 
Deion Jones's contract is so god awful that nobody in their right mind would want to trade for him, especially with how much his production has just plummeted off the face of the earth the last couple of years. So he's got probably one more year, and then his dead cap hit drops from I think around twenty two million to three million. So he's obviously going to be cut, if not traded, at that point. So. Now we are in this position. It's very similar to San Francisco a few years ago. You're just stripping this team down to its bare bones. You're scorching the earth, if you will, and you're starting from scratch. I think every single pick in this draft for the Falcons is going to be the best player available because you're not really going to have anybody left from the old team outside of maybe A.J. Terrell and Kyle Pitts. Um. But you're going to be in a situation where obviously the big question is whether the Falcons go quarterback at one and at, at the eighth overall pick in the first round or they do something else. At this point, I've been pretty blunt about the fact that Malik Willis is the only quarterback I think is worth going after. But the trick with him is you can't rush him at all. He's enough of a project that you have to have Marcus Mariota start all 17 games for the Atlanta Falcons. Do I say all 17 with the confidence that they're not going to play any more than that? Absolutely, because the schedule is freaking brutal. We play the NFC West, arguably the best division in football. Maybe not anymore considering all the talent that went to the AFC West in free agency, but still a very tough division. What's the other one you play? Oh, the AFC North, which is the most balanced division in all of football. Yeah, Pittsburgh's heading towards a rebuild. The Browns are still going to be a lot better, probably. Baltimore's perpetually competitive. And you're left with a bunch of really good teams you have to play. Tom Brady comes back to Tampa, and New Orleans stays as New Orleans. So you are completely screwed. What are we probably going to end up with? Four wins, tops. What is that going to do? Maybe we get a top five pick. Maybe a Detroit or a Jacksonville or even a Minnesota, depending on what they try to do, ends up at a slightly worse situation. Am I kind of hoping that we're able to get a quarterback in next year's draft? Yes. Maybe we suck enough that we have one here in this draft, and then we can go and get another edge rusher or whatever in the next one. But anyway, what what does this all lead to? The way that this front office can avenge this nonsense that happened with Deshaun Watson is draft well. Would I love to see Richie Grant also break out as the second round pick from the previous draft? Yes, but you've got multiple third round picks, multiple second round picks, and a pretty early pick in the first round to work with. I think we have another fourth round pick as well maybe even extra fifth, just from trying to remember just what we have from the Julio trade and from the Matt Ryan trade. And um, this is a situation I, I would, you you have to trade Grady Jarrett to get more picks because Grady's contract is up and he's going to want to go to somewhere competitive. And I think just the market for him is going to be very high. So obviously I'm going to work through some mocks. I think I'll give... As a Falcons fan, I think I'll give a somewhat of a throw to thrown together mock on a team specific level of what I think they should do through all seven rounds. But this could be probably one of the most important drafts in Falcons history because this is this is the start of the new regime. We look back to the guys that were part of that twenty sixteen Super Bowl run. That yes, we got. Julio and Matt Ryan had been there for an extended period of time. We're on that 2012 team together, but Deion Jones, Keanu Neal, those guys are rookies. Those guys were the key contributors on defense, and they were in their first year at that point. It's kind of sad that we saw that both of those guys fall off as quickly as they rose to the top. Yes, but you're going to have to draft very well this draft you at least need to show some promise with these young guys coming in. And then, obviously, 
after this season, the cap situation gets a lot better. You have a lot less dead money to spend. Obviously, you've got $40 million going to Matt Ryan, and then you've also got $15 million going to Julio Jones, and then you've got, I think, about $6.5 million going to Dante Fowler. So it's definitely a situation where I, I just you got to hope for the best. Maybe this last draft was a learning experience. Maybe it's just, maybe we're just not giving these guys enough time. We'll have to wait and see. Am I going to have to see some results before I show any kind of optimism for this team? Absolutely. So uh, that's going to conclude this um, kind of bipolar episode of the hopeless sports mentee podcast if you will make sure to like and follow the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it on uh whether it's spotify breaker apple music google podcasts whatever make sure to share it on your social media and make sure to follow me on twitter at taylorbell222 to get show updates and some uh sports takes throughout the day as well also, make sure to catch me on Saturday mornings on the Southern Gentleman Sport, Sport Show based out of Okaloosa Island, Florida. You can find that on wearesportsradio.com. Thanks again for listening. This is the Hopeless Sports Mantid Podcast. Welcome into this episode of the Hopeless Sports Mantid Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we're going to be breaking down the SEC East Division as we are just about a month away from college football and it's going to be, I think, a great season, and hopefully the SEC East can take a step up and return to at least being somewhat close to the level of the SEC West, which I still contend is the best division in all of college football. We're going to be going team by team in the East, breaking down their schedule and looking at what I predict their record to be, which games they win, which games they lose, and a little bit of why when it comes to those toss-up games and those upset games as well so we are going to start in last place and then work our way up until we get to the division winner in last place not surprisingly it's the Vanderbilt Commodores they come in with a new coaching staff after uh, just a really tough situation that they're thrown into with competing with teams that don't have nearly the academic requirements that Vanderbilt has, and they just have the resources to um, out-recruit guys uh, into Nashville. Clark Lee is in a very, very tough situation, and because of that, I give them two wins on the season altogether. They come, they finish 2-10, and ten, and they end up beating... Elon and Northern Illinois, the two out-of-conference games, just because I don't see it with this roster, and I just don't think they have the depth to be able to compete in the SEC. It's a very, very hard situation, a roster that this is a situation where you're really trying to build this program from the ground up at this point. It's been a long time since James Franklin was the head coach, and it's going to take some time, and there's going to be a lot of growing pains. They do play week zero at Hawaii, which could be a very close game, but I think just with um, lack of depth and then on top of that, it's at Hawaii, so you're dealing with a crazy um, travel schedule there to fly out to Honolulu. And um, outside of that, they do have a... Another tough conference game, Wake Forest, will give them a heck of a run. That game is in Nashville, but um, kind of two of the smaller academic schools, and they are in very different situations here with Sam Hartman and that offense uh, really being able to outscore a lot of teams, especially in the ACC. Now, they aren't in the Coastal. Uh, they're in the Atlantic, so... Um, that makes it a little bit tougher because you got to play Clemson every year. But um, it's definitely a game that I don't really expect Vanderbilt to do much. But if we see them 
I think, make that game competitive. That's definitely something they can build upon heading into the rest of the season. Now, keeping it short and sweet here with a 2-10 team, I don't think you guys really want to listen to me talk about Vanderbilt for an extended period of time. So we're going to move up to Mizzou, who I have finishing 4-8 and eight on the year. I just don't really see it with Eliza Drinkwitz. They're not recruiting at a very high level, and they don't really seem to have great quarterback play. And um, that's something that's becoming more and more important in college football and was something that I at least wanted to see should be expected with a coach, an offensive coach like Drinkwitz. And um, I just think that this very well could be his last year in Mizzou. As, um, like I said, four and eight, I have them losing to Kansas State, Auburn, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Arkansas. I think Vanderbilt very well could be the only conference game that they end up actually uh, winning this year. Um, just with, I think, some of these other teams, you look at the Tennessees and the South Carolinas in the East, I think they make that next step. Maybe some of them, they don't take a, a huge leap, but going from a fringe bold team to a seven or eight win team um, can be something that makes it that much tougher on those teams at the bottom of the East, like Missouri and Vanderbilt. So not really expecting much out of them. Uh, very tough season ahead for the Missouri Tigers. Next we go up to, uh, or should I say down, to Gainesville where we have the Florida Gators. This is, I understand, I'm saying this record as a Georgia fan. I am fully aware of the inherent bias that exists here. But I have Florida at a 5-7 and seven season. Um and this is not a knock on Billy Napier by any means. This is not, I, you could say it's wishful thinking, um, but I think it's just a matter of being a first-year head coach, and this is a roster that um, they don't really have many receivers paired with a the fact that they have a very young quarterback that still, I think, needs some development in Anthony Richardson and on top of that, you just have a lack of recruiting, especially by the standards that should be set for a team in the state of Florida, one of the more talent-rich states in the country because of uh, just lackadaisical effort by Dan Mullen and his staff. And on top of that, you had situations where the old staff straight up sabotaged the program on their way out the door as well, which makes it that much harder for Billy Napier and company to have to walk into all of this. And I think with the, I understand um, the tail end of the season, you can't get, get much worse than Florida was last year. But I think I also, like I said, you want to factor in that you're dealing with a Mullen recruiting class. That's going to be significantly weaker than some of the classes that, um, Jim McElwain was bringing in and the players like Kyle Trask and Kyle Pitts that Mullen was able to have at least a little bit of success with if you want to consider um, winning the Eastern Division success. Although I'll tell you and a lot of Florida fans also will tell you that that's definitely not where the bar needs to be for a program like Florida at this point in time. But just to go over the games that they lose, they go they play Utah at home week one. Very tough opponent. Utah is one of those teams looking to take the next step and become a true overall competitive program on a national level. And that's a game that I think them and then Kentucky, who is consistently known for their trench play, that is a physical toll to take on a team in the first couple of weeks of the season. And then after some games against teams like uh, South Florida, for example, you end up going to Tennessee, which I think Tennessee is one of those teams that improves upon last year and was one of the better uh, seven-win teams 
from last season, and I think the lack of depth that Florida has is not a a good combination with the tempo that Josh Heupel's offense is going to run with. Then you have the, I say, toss-up game between Florida and LSU. I think LSU ends up coming out on top in that game, although that's a game that can go either way, and it's two teams, first-year head coaches, overhauling the roster. We really don't know what to expect from either team in that game, Um, and it's one of those where I think it really depends on how the earlier part of the season goes and just with the physicality that Florida goes up against in the first couple of weeks. I think that gives LSU a little bit of an edge. Now, it is in the swamp. That can kind of carry it back. And then LSU does play Tennessee the week before. So the tempo could be pretty tough on them. But just I'm very high on a couple of those other teams. Uh, And then there's even the uh, out-of-conference game for LSU. Kind of their opener is against Florida State, who is definitely not in the same position as they were when that game was most likely put on the schedule. So um, I think LSU has the advantage there. And this is a very important game, I think, for both of those teams in very similar situations that those first-year head coaches really want to come out on top in that game to help on the recruiting trail, and especially just with the fact this is your crossover game. This is the the uh, opposite division rival for both of them. So this is a bragging rights type of game and a game that you're going to want to win just for the sake of your own pride as well. So 5-7 and seven for Florida. I don't think this reflects what the rest of the Billy Napier tenure is. This is just a byproduct of what a first-year head coach in this type of situation is walking into. Next, we have quite a bit of a jump with um, just how top-heavy the East, I think, turns out to be this year. I have South Carolina at 8-4. and four. Their losses are to Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, and Texas A&M. Notice I did not say Clemson. On that list. That is because I think this is one of the going to be kind of a signature win for Shane Beamer and company and his staff in order to build upon. As I think this is finally the time where we see them uh, beat Clemson. It's been a long time coming. I understand it's in Death Valley. Um, in Clemson, if you are an LSU fan and you want to say you're the true Death Valley. Um but there's not I don't really I'm just gonna be honest, there's no logic that can really explain that with the front seven that um Clemson is bringing and then the lack of offensive line play that South Carolina has. I think that's gonna be their biggest um flaw in terms of what keeps them from being a true national contender. Um overall is just that offensive line is not really there. I do think bringing Spencer Rattler in um, and the emergence possibly of Jaheim Bell helps out, I think, just with the quarterback situation that South Carolina was in last year. Any kind of semblance of a decent quarterback is a massive improvement for them when you're playing a grad assistant that didn't do any conditioning. You're not really going to end up doing too well. So um, because of that... I think we really see Shane Beamer uh, create some stability in Columbia. This is definitely, just with uh, the situation that he came into, this is not the program. You're not going to see some ridiculous second-year jump like you saw with Kirby Smart or with Nick Saban. This is going to be a program that has to build upon solid, steady growth, kind of similar to how Dabo was able to build uh, the Clemson program up. Am I saying they get to that point? No. Um, I'm just saying it's something where I don't think you're ever going to see. I don't think you really see the roof cave in for Shane Beamer. I think this is going to be a guy that's going to consistently put his team in positions to win games and um, at least win some 
solid bowl games, which I think in a, for a program like South Carolina, you can't really blame yourself when that's um, if that's the result year in and year out. But I'm very high on Shane Beamer, and I think he's able to win some very close games. I think that's going to be something that he's going to really focus on with this program and become part of their identity is this this just feels like it's going to be a very scrappy team and I think they'll be able to take advantage of one of those teams that is has more talent than them if for say it's a noon kickoff or you've played a couple of tough teams in back-to-back weeks and you're a little tired this is definitely a team you're going to see on a lot of trap game lists, I think, um, for on a week-to-week basis throughout this season. But next, we move up to the team in third place, which is going to be the Kentucky Wildcats. This is a team that they bring back Will Levis, who has moved up draft boards a lot just because of his physical skill set. He does have a bit of a turnover problem, but... Um, that is something that I think he can really work on. And just given the extra experience he has, I think the college game is going to be moving that much slower for him uh, this season. So you end up, I think, just naturally he's going to cut down on the turnovers a little bit there. The big question mark for Kentucky is it's looking like off because of a domestic issue. I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but there's a very strong possibility that Chris Rodriguez is not a member of the Kentucky football team this season. Now that does play in a factor. I think emotionally more than anything else. If you've listened to my podcast before, you understand that I am one of the firm believers in that as far as positional value, Running back isn't really high on that list, but this is a power running team, so I think they hold a little bit more value just based off of the scheme that Mark Stoops likes to run. They do lose uh, Liam Cohen off the staff, who was uh, a really good offensive coordinator for them last year, but just with what Mark Stoops has been able to do, I think that... um, it's a situation where he's going to be able to keep that stability there in Lexington, and it's a, and it's a big reason why he's up there as one of the uh, higher-paid um, coaches in the SEC, especially in the SEC West. Um, I think that this is uh, kind of like Shane Beamer in a way. You're not going to see the, the roof cave in. You're going to see a constant at least seven win team most years but with them I have them going nine and three with losses to Ole Miss Tennessee and Georgia so obviously by this point you've kind of picked up on the fact that I have Tennessee and Georgia as the top two teams in the east and then Ole Miss I think based off of just uh, schematically I really like what Lane Kiffin is doing. I think Ole Miss is a team that flies a little bit under the radar this year. I don't want to go into too much detail uh, before I do a full show on the SEC West, but um, that's a team that's going to be very tough to beat this year, I think, coming out of uh, Oxford, Mississippi. So 9-3 season for Kentucky and third in the SEC East. At number two, also at 9-3, the Tennessee Volunteers with losses to Bama, Georgia, and an upset win by South Carolina. This is a team that we saw towards the second half of the year. Once they got Hendon Hooker under center, this team looked a lot better than their record showed because of the early part of the season with losses to teams like Pitt, where they had Joe Milton at quarterback for some reason, and it really, I think, held the offense back tremendously uh they are able to um i think this is if we see a team take a second year jump in the sec east this is the team to do it they do a great job of obviously i think it's well um researched what kind of 
tempo that Tennessee works with, i.e. absolutely mind-numbingly crazy fast, um, running, uh, I believe the play, the, the pace is trying to do a, is a snap every 15 seconds, um, including during the play. Um, that's going to be able to win them some games just because of there's the teams that are lower on the depth part of it. Uh, that becomes a major advantage over the course of the game and then um, kind of feeds into some other teams as well because when you've played a team that's running as many plays as Tennessee does, you're going to be pretty tired even the next week um, and kind of limits what you can do in practice. Um, for them, a lot of the uh, tougher games for them outside of Georgia um, are home games. They do the home-and-home with Pitt that's in – uh, Pitt this year, uh, two teams that are going, I think, in opposite directions based off of what they did last season. Obviously, you lose Jordan Addison and Kenny Pickett. That's really going to hurt you offensively if you're Pitt. Um, but Florida's at home, LSU on the road. Bama is at home, but I just think uh, the revenge tour for Bama, they did win this game. Tennessee hung around for the first few quarters, but I just think the defensive back play especially – they're not going to let um, guys like Vilas Jones, um, obviously he's off the roster now, he's now with the Chicago Bears, but uh, the receivers consistently get behind the defense the way they did last year. Um, Kentucky is a home game, and we've with the history of that rivalry, it's very hard to side with Kentucky in that just because that tends to be that in Florida – you end up with the records um, versus that team being as one-sided because that's one of the games where they tend to, uh, quote, uh, Kentucky it up uh, and up losing in a way what they really shouldn't. And uh, Georgia is obviously, I think, the team to beat, the defending national champions, and that's a game that is at home, and Georgia ended up winning pretty handedly. They uh, Tennessee went down the field and scored very quickly on the first drive, but then we kind of saw a very fast adjustment from the defensive staff for Georgia, and then the, the line of scrimmage dominance was just too much for Tennessee to be able to overcome. Had a couple of turnovers and some missed fourth down conversions. Um, maybe they make it a little closer this year just with how much talent was lost on defense, but Kirby Smart's been recruiting at such a high clip I don't think there's really as much of a drop-off as a lot of people tend to expect. And that's why I have Georgia at 12-0 and this year. Not only is Georgia uh, continually one of the best teams in the country talent-wise, whether it's how many five stars, whether it's development, blue-chip ratio, whichever figure you want to look at, but the schedule is looking um, – pretty easy for Georgia. You do play Oregon at um, a neutral site in air quotes as that game is in Atlanta. So it's practically a home game for Georgia uh, first week of the season against Oregon and Oregon's got Bo Nix at quarterback who has not had um, much success. He's 0-3 against Georgia as the starting quarterback from 2019 through this past season. Um, and then uh, you've got Florida in a rebuilding situation. Um, it's a rivalry game, so that's still kind of have to say that can go either way. But um, I don't want to push that too much. And then uh, just kind of an overall summary. You've seen me. You might have heard me hit on this on the Southern Gentleman Sports Show. But it's an even year for Georgia. Um, why is that important? In even years, that is when Georgia ends up playing both Tennessee and Auburn at home, which are typically, especially going back to the Mark Rick days game, the two games that Georgia can tend to struggle in at times. And Kentucky ends up being the um, tough road game, if you will. Um, that is at um, on November 19th uh, towards the uh, second to last week of the season. And it'll be the last conference game of the year for Georgia obviously with the rivalry week game being Georgia Tech who is in pretty much shambles right now 
Um, but I think we see we do see some defensive drop off from Georgia. Obviously, you have seven guys get drafted. That doesn't help. Um, but you bring back most of the secondary, including uh, Keely Ringo and Chris Smith, who were the two biggest difference makers in the national championship game outside of Lewis Seen, um, who is now uh, first round pick to the Minnesota Vikings. But you see so much returning talent on the offense. You even get Tate Ratledge back at guard, who uh, was supposed to be one of the biggest difference makers on the offensive line before he was injured on the second play of the game against Clemson and then done for the season. But Brock Bowers, best tight end in the country, coming back. Lad McConkey coming back. A.D. Mitchell coming back. Any difference maker on the offense, receiving-wise, outside of Jermaine Burton, they're pretty much coming back. Kiaris Jackson looking like he's finally healthy as the uh, slot receiver, kind of the difference maker on third down. He's coming back as well. So I think for how much we see the defense fall back a little bit, I think there's a very good chance that the offense for Georgia can make up for that. And that paired along with a somewhat uh, easier schedule for them, I think they go into Atlanta undefeated once again and there's uh given that i think that all but guarantees a college football playoff berth for the georgia bulldogs they could end up playing alabama again and end up playing alabama twice um but if you want to know what i truly think about that you'll have to listen to the next episode of the hopeless sports mantic podcast where we will be breaking down the sec west team by team schedule by schedule, win by win, loss by loss. Um, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of HSP and make sure to like and follow the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at TaylorBell222 to get uh, sports hot takes. You can find me on Twitter spaces a lot of the time as well, uh, where I'm constantly just uh, talking about different parts of college football with people with as part of fan bases all over the country, recruiting, hypotheticals, all-time lists, anything, you can find me there. Uh, and make sure to uh, share the podcast, again, because I'm trying to uh, grow the audience, so hopefully I can do some more show, to you, show for you guys um, when I have the time. But, uh, thanks again for listening. This is Taylor. You've been listening to the Hopeless Sports Mated Podcast.